Here's your almanac for tilling the cultural soil with the conversations we plan with humor, faith, and wisdom. Here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm Nat. Welcome to The Till. I'm sorry, I'm the one starting this thing? Wait, I don't know, am I starting this? <laughs> I think, I think Nat, you're starting it today. Okay, so Lent's coming up, right? Seems like kind of a cold start, man. That is yes, a really Lent cold start. is coming up. Hey, greetings, greetings. It's nice. To, it's nice to see your your bright shiny face. Oh, thanks. Yeah, Nat, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm seeing you over the computer right now here, Nat, and you seem to have a fluorescent light shining beautifully on your head, as if God's very Shekinah has parted the clouds from the heavens and it landed upon you. So you must have quite a question or thought or something going on today. <laughs> well, I was in as in I was sitting in Caribou and uh, and drinking coffee with one of my sisters and she asked she was like hey i was like what's on your mind and she was like humans are evil and bad and i was like whoa this is gonna be deep and dark and this might merit more than one cup of coffee but what she came out with then after that was um i guess they've been studying sort of like the impact of humanity on the environment and sort of you know the extinction of like the passenger pigeons and stuff uh, and so she was asking me a lot of questions about you know renewable energy sources and the environment and uh, in a lot of these sort of interesting uh, bits. And I guess what sort of this sprung up was there seems to be a bit of a dichotomy here between how the church ends up handling the environment and how the rest of the world sees it. And I don't know if those sort of align, but I wasn't really sure where to go with this question and having not studied environmental science at all, just knowing that it's a hot button topic and I thought you might have an opinion or two. Peter, you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? Wow. Yeah, gosh, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of different directions we go with that. I mean, I think when you talked about Nat at first, the impact uh, on the environment, I think it's <clears throat> just simple, <clears throat> excuse me, math. You don't have to necessarily have to be um, a Christian, non-Christian sort of dichotomy in this to recognize that the earth has a finite amount of resources available to it and that it can be plundered for its resources and left sort of barren and arid and, 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 um, almost to the point of unhabitability if we had too many people on the earth and not enough resources. So I, I sort of understand that there needs to be ongoing sustainability questions. I mean, you, you can see it on micro levels just in your yard. Mm-hmm. If you enjoy gardening, uh, the way you treat your yard and gardening really does have an impact on the availability of resources. Now, whether we're evil or not evil, I don't know about that. I would say that there is um, a, de- a desire to survive and a desire to sometimes make things easy among human beings. But um, at the very least, it also then is a theological question on a lot of different levels, to be sure. Right. So I would um, uh, I would approach it from several different points. And part of the reason that there's a difference in um, in the view of. Well, I'll just say creation care um, is because not everybody regards it as creation with a creator. Right. Who is ultimately. Um, the sustainer and the redeemer. And so not everybody shares our redemptive understanding of all of human history and that all creations groaning with eager longing for man's redemption. And that, um, and that redemption is not just about people. It is about creation itself. And that one day there is going to be a new heaven uh, and a new earth. And that, which is, is this earth is going to actually pass away. Like that is a part of our uh, gospel understanding of the way God is going to work things out. And so, um, that's not to say that people who are concerned about the environment are wrong, because I think that they are rightly concerned about the environment. I think that creation care is the responsibility um, given to 
humanity as the stewards of God's creation. Uh, and I think that it's res- the responsible way to live as a Christian in the world today um, for most of us would be to live more simply so that other people could simply live um, to encourage uh, ways of life that are uh, that promote the flourishing of not just ourselves, but others that my care for my neighbor would be uh, about the changing climate and their ability to continue to live in the places where they currently live um, with a sufficiency of resources to actually flourish. Like all of those should be of concern to me. Um, the passenger pigeon, maybe not topping my list. Uh, human beings, human beings living on the edge of survival in places where um, life is becoming unsustainable. That is probably a bigger concern to me as a Christian um, than than a particular animal of which there are many representatives of a kind. Hmm. See, I, I confess that I'm a bit of an animal guy myself. Now the pigeon doesn't fall super high on my animal <laughs> list either, but I, I was reading in Minnesota here about the uh, decimation of the rusty patched bumblebee population. Yeah. Uh, where there's only maybe about uh, 10% left of that population. And I, I just think those are fascinating creatures, these rusty patch bumblebees, truly. So, I'll, you know, I don't know why my heart goes out to them more than other animals, but I think, Carmen, you had had a really important point, is how do we hold the tension of knowing that this world has to come to an end, and it's not going to end well at the end of the day, at least according to the biblical witness, with being good stewards in the midst of sort of this present darkness, this world that is lost in, in its brokenness, and what is the purpose of, of good stewardship? Well, it, it can't be because we're going to be able to ourselves create sort of this perfect era of peace and love and brotherhood, sisterhood, and, and we all get along in this beautiful oneness on this earth because the earth is going to fail at the end of the day. So, so why would we even bother then? And why wouldn't we just grasp after for anything we want? In fact, why don't the three of us just go ahead and go full on consumeristic behavior so that we can hasten the day that Jesus would have to return, right? I mean, sort of, <laughs> But of the logical ideas about this, if we're not careful, um, you have to kind of think through. So I do think there's that now and not yet tension that theologians talk about, that the way we live now isn't about sustaining the now. It is about shining a light of the future that will eventually one day become the now. And so, so we shine the light of that future in the present so that people will see where their actual home and their actual future is going to be, at least in part. And so I want to be a good steward of the environment and of the people around me. Um, yes, I suppose on some level to hand it down well to my kids, but most importantly, I want to shine even a little taste of God's beautiful unfolding kingdom in the present on behalf of that future that is coming. So I, I don't know how to live in the now, not yet tension other than that, because A, the world's going to end. B, we can't create the messianic brotherhood we have a desire, but we still have responsibilities in the midst of it. Yeah, that seems fair. So I'd be interested um, uh, in in knowing a little bit more in like I in pursuing the conversation with your sister Nat. Um, so I might have you know me I might have gone to a headline I might have said well gosh you know m- most recently the thing um, around the globe that has me just like my heart just beating out of my chest in relationship to creation are these um, is the bushfire in Australia. Mm, mm-hmm, um, right. And we're talking about a billion animals, um, actually 113 different species now on the verge of extinction because of uh, 
these these fires this year. A billion animals have died in these bushfires. And so I might be tempted to have a conversation and say, you know, we're talking about uh, a first world country. We're talking about a country that could have um, abated these kinds of fires um, if they had used good fire abatement practices by burning underbrush and those kinds of things. Um, and, and frankly, if there weren't just evil people who started fires every once in a while. So like, right. I mean, that gets to her. People are evil mm-hmm. kind of part of the question. She's not wrong. People are evil. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Nat, I, I, I is it stere- too generalized to say that um, this is, one of the common questions uh, of your generation that maybe Carmen, you and I didn't grow up with as much, but I guess what I can say in fairness, even 10 years ago in my ethics syllabi that I might've handed out in class, we wouldn't have talked much about the environment, but now it, uh, I would say environmental questions and sexual questions would be the two most top of the mind questions for young people in my classes today. Oh, I totally agree with that. I think that's a huge topic that comes up and, and, from what I've seen, a little bit of point of contention where sometimes you look sort of, you know, uh, from the outside in on sort of like generalizing broad categories of Christianity. And it's like, oh, there's kind of like this push and you're like, well, how do I, you know, sort of align this with, you know, the beliefs that you sort of grew up with in school and sort of the beliefs that people have come to with like that. Yes, the environment environment is important. Um, and there does seem to be a little bit of attention there that is prevalent and on people's minds today. So I don't think that it's a broad generalization at all. Hmm. Well, certainly a topic for another time in the till, I would think, and then we could dive more deeply into, uh, not necessarily a topic for today, but that is Nat's, uh, Nat's question for the day for sure. Um, Nat, does that, does that satisfy what you're looking for on this time around? Yeah, I think that takes an approach that is sort of neither, neither of the answers and, and works into, you know, a healthy perspective that, takes both care of the environment as well as uh, looking, you know, sort of in its relation to what we care for most in God's creation and stuff. So, Okay, so if your sister wants some resources on this, so yeah. the National Association of Evangelicals actually has some really great resources on creation care and the call to care for creation. Um, so she could go to nae.net, which is the National Association of Evangelicals, and she could um, she could look on the creation care info stuff. There's just great resources on this particular topic. Amazing. And Carmen, that's pretty new uh, also, too, for the NEAs and not in terms of Leif Anderson and the president there. I mean, that's a pretty new statement that they came out with related to this. Well, 1970, which sort of shows your age. But yeah, 1970, <laughs> they actually cared okay. about the climate. I, I was so, barely born in 1970. So when you, when you were two so years 19, old, it was top of the mind for you then too, right? Yeah, exactly. So in 1970, the NAE issued the, the what was called Ecology 1970, and then it has certainly been updated. Um, okay. In um, in 2011, we updated it into something called Loving the Least of These, which was addressing the changing environment, and it was to address. Um, the reality of our of, of our human neighbors around the world and the changing environments in which they were seeking to live. And then that was updated again um, more recently with this caring for God's creation, a call to action, which is a statement that builds on both of those two prior um, pieces. Yeah, that's the piece I'm familiar with. Well, I'm glad to know that your people have been concerned about the ecology <laughs> for as long as they have. <laughs> <laughs> your people are my people. Our main, our main topic of the day, um, having now dealt with creation care, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. 
You guys Perfect. good with that? Yeah. Yeah. That is Yep. So um, Lent is upon us. The season of Lent. It's this forty days leading up to um, uh, leading up to Easter, Holy Week, and then Easter. And I was asked by a young person the other day, you know, what do you give up for Lent? And I said, I don't actually give up anything for Lent. I generally try to find something that I can take on, um, a spiritual practice I can adopt, something that I could commit to make a habit of in in the 40 days, because it's that's a good period of time in which to make a new habit. Um, and so I find it better to pursue something like that I'm adding versus trying to focus on not doing something every day. That's just yeah. better for me. So yeah. um, so this year, one of the things that I am doing is um, actually doing it with some other people, making an actual conscious and intentional effort every single day to put on the full armor of God as described in Ephesians 6. Mm. So I thought that we might do that as an exercise today. We might talk about the, those pieces of the full armor of God, talk about why as Christians we put them on and the spiritual warfare going on around us all the time for which we need uh, to be armored up. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I, you know, it, it's such a misunderstood, right, category of our of our faith so often, especially in Western, more propositional truth-based culture where we tend to define our faith by the statements we believe as opposed to the relationships in which we find ourselves and even the very lively spiritual universe that is all around us. When you read the biblical witness, it is, if nothing else, the biblical witness is very much a paranormal document in the, in the sense that the worldview of those who wrote and the worldview of those who lived within the times of the Bible sort of assumed a spiritual worldview. The only question was, how did they most effectively interact with and engage with the world? It wasn't a question of if the spiritual world exists, it was a question of how. So, um, Nat, I'm curious, <clears throat> how much exposure have you had to conversations that, you know, sort of engage the topic of sp spiritual beings in the spiritual realm? Not a lot at all. Uh, I mean, it comes up every so often, but it generally seems to be skirted around. It's kind of the, you know, difficult to, I don't know, dis it seems to be a little bit of a hard topic to grasp, particularly with it not being like innately tangible. Mm -hmm. So definitely so not as much as I should have. Well, I think that's one of the things the Apostle Paul is actually trying to deal with, right? He's trying to really, um, the Ephesians are aware of spiritual uh, realities. I mean, they live in a super, they live in a context of a supernatural worldview, like Peter was just describing. Um, they have seen, uh, if we, you know, if we believe what, what, what Acts has to say about what the Ephesians have experienced in their own community, in their own context, um, they have seen real spiritual warfare. <laughs> they have seen demons cast out. Um, they have, uh, seen these things up close and personal. And so when Paul is describing what it looks like for a Christian to armor up every day, um, he's using, um, he's using physical pieces of armor that they would be familiar with, um, uh, because they see Roman, soldiers all the time. But these are also pieces of armor, interestingly enough, that are all referred to in Isaiah's prophecies, uh, which were pieces of armor that the suffering servant was going to put on. And so Christ has already worn all of these. Like, so when we're putting on this spiritual armor, when we're putting on the whole armor of God, these are already pieces that Christ is wearing. He has already taken them on as the suffering ser servant. They are already a part of the armor of the victor. I think that's cool. Wow. I did not know that. I didn't know that either. That's a very interesting piece of the puzzle, Carmen. Um, I, I would love to even hear just a bit more about that. But even so, how do we then engage with that as well as sort of victors in this situation? 
All right. Well, let's. Uh, how about we start off by reading from Ephesians six, the the text we're talking about, because it's it might be unfamiliar to some people. So, from Ephesians chapter six, verses ten to twenty, uh, this passage begins with the word "finally," which means we're going to have to make a quick review in just a minute of what is all what comes before this. Finally, Paul says, "Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil." Uh, and this passage of scripture goes on to say, it goes on to describe uh, then exactly what that looks like. So he says, um, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions uh, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Mm-hmm. So Paul's laying out, um, he's laying out an outfit, all right? And it starts with a belt of truth. And um, that belt of truth is actually referred to in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, where the belt of truth is going to be uh, what the suffering servant girds himself up with. And then you're going to add to that the breastplate of righteousness, which is referred to in Isaiah 59. We also get a reference in that Isaiah 59 passage to the helmet of salvation, um, and then when we get to the gospel of peace and these shoes that are fitted, uh, our feet fitted for the gospel of peace, we would remember that from Isaiah 52, um, the, uh, the feet of those who bring good news. And then the sword of the spirit is taken up by the suffering ser- servant in Isaiah 49, verse 2. So Jesus has already done all of this. He's the one who comes as the truth, righteousness, and peace. And, um, and so I just think that when we see ourselves every single day, like, actually intentionally putting on these pieces of spiritual armor, we recognize that they fit us because we fit Christ. Like we are in Christ and Christ has already put on these pieces of spiritual armor. And so it's not as if we're like David trying to put on Saul's armor, which totally didn't fit. The more we're conformed to Christ, the more easily this armor fits us because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And I think it's, um, I, I sometimes, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? He is, uh, he's making a statement in that idea that he is the truth that in my own confusion sometimes about those things that may or may not be true about God's kingdom, I, I sort of rest in the idea that Jesus is actually the truth. And so I, I try to, and I, and I tell my students this often too, that I may not know the fullness of truth, but I am in relationship with the one who is the truth. And because that is the case, you sort of find your, as Paul would write in other passages in in scripture, your life is sort of hidden with Christ and God. And and I'm not sure what all of that means, but somehow there is this really interesting partnership between a risen Lord who's promised to be with us always, even into the end of the age, and with whom we have an ongoing relationship. And, And from that place, his light and his shepherding and all those sorts of things sort of lead us in these pathways of truth. And but I'll tell you what, if by contrast, Satan is primarily the father of lies and the author of confusion and darkness, 
it seems to me that however we understand walking in the truth, it, it has to be tethered to Jesus in some kind of way in order for us to be see, able to see through the confusion, the darkness that I think is all over the place. I heard a pastor once say that um, he was given a sermon on the, uh, Jesus confronting the legions of demons and, uh, and the demons coming to Jesus and say, what do you have to do with us because we are many? And, and there's a lot of different ways you can go with that passage. But what the pastor pointed out that gave me a little bit of chills even to this day is he said, you know, many, many, many are the voices in this world that would seek to lead us astray and sow confusion and lies and turmoil and suffering and pain and all of that. But there is one voice of the good shepherd that resonates uh, with us and can lead us through all of that. And, and I think about all of the untruths that are surrounding me all day long as opposed to the one who is the truth that can lead the way forward. So I love that the idea that putting on the full armor starts with the, with the belt of truth and, uh, and that to tether yourself to Jesus as that source of truth is, is a starting point in all this. So I'm wondering if either of you have ever like consciously done this as, as any sort of spiritual exercise, like intentionally walked through these items of armor and intentionally like as a spiritual practice, put them on. I think we've done it like once in Sunday school in like third grade. I'm pretty right. sure they were also made out yeah. of like paper bags and stuff. Oh yeah. The flannel graph, they would have shown them on the flannel graph and they said, now here's the garbage bag, everybody and have at it. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, so I just want to just suggest that every day when we get dressed, we can actually do this. I mean, we're, you know, we're wearing a foundation garment of some kind. We are wearing something, um, you know, that would, you know, be like a shirt. I mean, there's, you know, there's all kinds of things that you and I can, um, that as we just get dressed in the morning, we could, as a spiritual exercise, also very consciously be putting on each and one of these uh, items of the full armor of God. Um, and and we're gonna um, we're gonna rehearse why it is that Paul says that we need to armor up. And then I think it might be interesting, guys, if we talk about um, what the devil is up to, because there's a couple of verses in this passage that really talk about uh, the scheming ways of the devil and i think it might be interesting for us to till that a little bit okay guys so um just to just to reset a little bit we're talking about ephesians chapter six today we're talking about um paul's admonition that we would put on the full armor of god and it's actually a passage that begins with the word finally um and so let me just remind us that anytime we see well, it's it, it's a word that obviously you can't ignore. Like you have to be like, it start, I mean, the passage starts with the word finally. So obviously yeah. we need to know something about what has come before it. Um, and so the context here is actually the entirety of the book of Ephesians. Um, Paul is talking here to people for whom he has prayed that they would be rooted and grounded in love, that they would be the, sp- the spiritual beneficiaries of being strengthened in their inner being in Christ. Um, that they would be people who are walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Um, and here, all of that culminates in this in this exhortation to uh, to hold fast, to stand firm, and to uh, and to live as people who are in the world, um not as themselves, but actually people who are in Christ and people who are prepared not only to do battle with the enemy, but to stand firm in the faith. This concept of simply standing firm is actually reiterated over and over and over again in this passage. And so I don't want to um, I don't want to lose track of that because it's it's this is more just standing where you are um, as opposed to like being on the offense every day against the enemy. 
um, just to hold your ground is yeah. really, in Paul's view, good enough. Mm. Hmm. That's a really interesting statement um, on that, Carmen. And if I can just put a little personal color to that a little bit. I, I know it was a couple of years ago that I was uh, walking into a church one evening and uh, and I was at that church to be with some people that I know in pastoral ministry and have known for quite some time. It was a book signing event. And, and at that time in the relationships, I knew that that particular pastoral group of people was really considering a move to becoming open and affirming in their embrace of sexuality, of LGBTQ stuff. And these, again, were, were um, good friends of mine on a lot of different levels. And it, it felt really confusing. It felt really hard. Uh, <laughs> it, felt, it, it felt strange. Um, to, but when I was walking in the door, it was almost like uh, God hit me over the head and basically said, do not go this way stand firm in what you already believe to be true about this is, uh, is, is as much as I heard uh, maybe God say anything as clearly as ever in that. Wow, Peter. Um, thank you for, first of all, thank you for sharing that. Um, it, it is a good illustration of the reality uh, of life, right? So it, it's not easy to stand. It's no, certainly it's not. not easy to, um, to stand where we know, the truth, you know, that we're, that we're in the truth and we're with the truth, but it's, it, it is a standing over and against um, others whom we love and like and want to be with. Um, and so one of the things I do appreciate about what Paul says here is that he uses the, um, he uses the term withstand. Like he wants us to be able to stand in order that we can withstand. And we think about withstanding as that which is like up against something else, right? Like I, I can, I can withstand this. But if you actually think about the word, to withstand means to stand with. And so when I am withstanding in the way that Paul is describing here, I am standing with Christ. I am standing on the truth. Um, I'm, I am, I'm, it's not me, right? I'm, covered in his righteousness. I'm in Christ. I'm wearing the armor of God. Um, It's really not me. It's really him. And so as hard as it is, I'm not going to walk away from Christ. I'm not going to walk away from the truth. I'm not going to like take off the armor and leave it over there so I can go be with people who have, who have taken a different position. I'm just not going to do that. I mean, we have a lot of conversation in our culture about being on the right side of history. I, I, I care very little. I care very little about being on the right side of history. I care right. a whole lot about being on the right side of a holy God. Yeah. Uh, I mean, absolutely, Carmen. That that phrase drives me wild because it, it feels so enticing. Of course, you want to be on the right side of history until you think about it for a second. And, and to your point, uh, to be on the right side of God re- might require something very different. And, and unfortunately, it can end up being quite a lonely journey. But, uh, you know, I don't know how Satan always shows up and he uses the word schemes and, and uh, what he does. And, and uh, I'm certainly, if I was Satan, right. I mean, I'm glad I'm not, but if I was <laughs> Satan, um, you know, he tends to show up in two different ways in the biblical text. And one is as a roaring lion. And if I was in the room with the roaring lion, I would know what to do. I mean, I think I would like to think I would know what to do and that's to run and run fast. I mean, you're going to get devoured if you stay in that spot, but it, that's not the troubling version of Satan as he appears in the text. It's uh, always Satan as the angel of light. That is the troubling version to me because an angel of light seems like it would be compelling, seems as if it would be life-giving, seems as if it would be the ways in which you want to step. 
And so if I was Satan, and I'm glad I'm not, I would appear as an angel of light and invite people to walk towards me, knowing that the whole time they're walking towards the death of their soul, even while they're deceived, believing it's the life of their soul. And, and that is the, and unless you're standing with Christ in the, in the truth of these things, it is really hard to spot the counterfeit from the truth when Satan has just the slightest twist on the truth where it feels so enticing, but it'll kill you in the end. Mm. Now, what are you thinking? It's the sirens call, you know, like on a, on a pirate ship, like they're, they're going through, they battle their sea monsters and they can fight. But what's the last thing that like trips everyone up? It's the, the allure of something that is bright and shiny that that's not. So when we talk about um, the schemes of the devil, um, he does show up a lot in scripture. He is a schemer. He's got plans. He's got strategies. He's totally committed. Um, He's got nothing else to do. Um, He's got lots of co-conspirators. I appreciate that you're uh, the reference that you made earlier, Peter, to the many, 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 right? There's lots yes. of co-conspirators, um, but our battle's not against flesh and blood. Like, right, we're, we don't right. want to demonize people, even as we're having this conversation about the reality that there are lots of people who are on the side of the enemy in these conversations. Yeah. So yeah, the right. um, uh, Satan's got a lot of co-conspirators. Uh, the, there's just this constant effort to challenge or confuse or compromise, certainly to conquer those who believe. Um and we have to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant and we have to armor up. I know so many Christians who just wander out there with no armor. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, they've got no protection. They're, they're, they're not guarding their heart and their mind. They're not, um, you know, they don't, they don't got a, they don't have a shield wall planned because they're not, they're not alongside other Christians. So even though they might, you know, be able to whip out the, you know, whip out a Bible verse from time to time. They're not standing battling as one man uh, alongside yeah. other Christians because they're not in that kind of rich fellowship. So I just think that right. in terms of <clears throat> in terms of the ta- challenge that we face, I think sometimes we do not take the enemy very seriously. Jesus took the enemy very seriously, very very yeah. seriously. And yeah. so when we belittle or sort of bemuse ourselves, you know, that the devil, you know, the devil, and we like uh, act like that's not a real thing. Um, and act like there's not real spiritual forces working constantly. This image of the devil prowling around looking for a way to devour us. We should be on alert. Um, we should be concerned. And many, many people are not. Yeah. Mm. I, I, Carmen, I think that's spot on. I mean, I forgive the Lord of the Rings reference here in just a minute here. I am sort of in the thick of it with my children as I, we're in the, in the last book with my, my youngest three kids. And I'm struck by that idea that you said, like, for those people that know the Lord of the Rings, there's one particular city of human beings that lives right on the edge of the main darkness uh, of the of the villain uh, that just brings such uh, horror into the world, that being Sauron. And they live on the edge of it all day long. And when they go out of their city of Gondor, they're under no illusion. They know that their entire day it has the potential for attack all around them. And so they don't go out of the gates of Minas Tirith in the, in the land of Gondor without their armor all about them. They've got their swords and their helmets and their shields and all of that. And that's in contrast to this little community called the Shire that has absolutely no idea of sort of the war that is waging around them all day long, right? And, and so, I mean, you just wonder how many of us are hobbits walking out the door, not aware of the fact that we're sort of in this cosmic struggle all day long, when truly that is what's going on in the world around us pretty constantly. And I think 
you know, to your admonition, Carmen, in Lent this year to be putting on this armor every morning like this, it probably will start being a discipline that you'll begin, you'll start seeing things that you otherwise may not have noticed before. It's kind of how that works, right? When you engage in these practices, mm-hmm. suddenly your, your heart kind of wakes up a little bit, your eyes sort of open up a little bit, and you begin to see the world as it is, not the illusion in which we so often live. So I've actually been doing this every day since college, since like my sophomore year of college. college. And did you say so you the- went to college in 1960 earlier? Is that what you said? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm- I saw it. The 1970 comments still sticking with me right now. So I just, you know, I needed to come back a little bit there. Well, it's just that you thought it was new. And so, yeah. yeah I know. So, justifiably so. Um, gaps. So, yeah. um, <laughs> so I've been, I've been doing this. Uh, I think this was introduced to me. Uh, not when you said, oh yeah, we did it once in third grade. I actually yeah. remember a leadership training event where we talked through this um, and and I, you know, I feel like they use like football equipment that time around or something. I went to the University of Florida. So probably there was like a real, you know, Florida Gator in the room armoring up for battle against, you know, Georgia Up, or somebody. Right. Upgrade Our, from the know, cardboard. Yeah. The arch yeah. rival. <laughs> so one of the things that I, I distinctly remember talking about um, in relationship to the helmet um, is that it, it part of what the helmet is. It's not just protective. It also shows to whom you belong. Huh. It's this mm-hmm. identification. Mm-hmm. And the same is actually true. The same is true of the shield, right? It has on it this evidence of it's your family crest. It's to whom you belong. Um, And so I just I think that there are images that we can plant in our minds and we can turn to and we can, you know, when we put on that helmet every single day, um, the helmet of salvation, we recognize that obviously it's Christ. Mm -hmm. It's not us. Um, And we and we come to the place where we're like, I belong to him. I'm on his team um, and I am going to I'm going to allow Christ to take every thought captive. I'm going to seek to have the mind of Christ on the matters of the day. I mean, some of this helmet of salvation business is is, is worldview oriented. So um, I just uh, I just feel like these pieces and parts, if we could make it a habit, an intentional habit of actually armoring up every day before we go out into the world, um, we might find ourselves better off. I get confused in what my identity is sometimes just in the sense that if I'm not careful, I might think I'm a business owner or a professor or a radio person or whatever it is and, and forget again what it is that who I, I actually am. I'm a follower of Jesus in this world. And when that's true and you see yourself that way, that reality of who you are in this world begins to be an integrated identity as then you walk out all of those other areas in life. And so I was telling my students this week that Uh, Life can feel very disintegrated if you are constantly subject to your sense of self according to the environments in which you find yourself. So if you're at school, you're a different person than at your job, a different person than your family, and a different person than whatever. But with what you're talking about, when you leave the house each day and you're like, I am armored up as a follower of Jesus in this world, and I'm taking that with me, whether today I find myself with my family or today I find myself at school or today I find myself at work or whatever it is, you begin to live an integrated life. And I think that's one of the overall uh, beautiful promises of Lent is that when we focus in these intentional ways on anything, not just the armor of God, it does lead to a much more integrated life. And this is the true story, as C.S. Lewis would talk about. This is the actual story in which we're living, not all of these false or temporary stories that we spend so much energy on. So if you've been doing this all the way since college or high school, as you said, 
then walk me through this. Like, what? How do you? How does this look after? Okay, all this well, time? so there's not. We're not talking about like physical items, right? I mean, we are, but we're not. And so, yeah. in my um, really, just as I'm getting dressed every morning, I actually just do this. I walk through this passage of scripture in my mind, and I very intentionally put on um, these various pieces of of God's armor. Um, and you know, and I don't walk out the door unless I've already been in the Word. I'm not going into the world without a sword. I'm just not doing that. I'm not going into the world without a shield of faith. I'm not going into the world without a helmet of salvation. I'm not going into the world without a breastplate of righteousness. I'm not going into the world um, without my feet being uh, shod with the gospel of peace. I'm just, I'm just not doing it. And under all of that, the foundational garment, the you know, the base layer is absolutely is truth is the reality of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it does form then how you see yourself in the world. You your arm, you're covered with armor. You are different in the world than all those little fleshy, smushy people who, you know, frankly, got nothing on. So uh, I'm just it's it's empowering. I will tell you that it's very empowering to um, to recognize that you are walking into the world um, under authority as a part of um, uh, a king, a king's effort as an ambassador, as an as an agent. I mean, you use whatever. I don't really think of it as a soldier. That's not really the imagery that necessarily works for me. Um, But um, on the sword business, did you guys ever do sword drills? Were you ever is that like a thing that you were ever a part of? Yes. No. No, Actually, sword drills. So so Nat doesn't know what that is. Peter, I mean, tell, oh, so, tell Nat what sword drills is. So, so Nat, you gather together like, let's say, 15, 20, 10-year-olds in the room, and you give them all a Bible, and then the leader gives a Bible passage, usually quite obscure, Zephaniah, <laughs> something or other, and then the first person to get to that passage is sort of the winner, right? Oh. And, uh, and there's no participation trophies. You either win or lose in this deal. And <laughs> And so, yeah, sword drills certainly was part of, it's funny you say it, Carmen, because with my kids each week, we're doing biblical passages and they're having to uh, work through 1 John 1, 1 through 5 and this crazy passage about the life appearing and we touched it and we felt it and all of these sorts of things. But I was so proud of myself last night because I got to 1 John in the blink of an eye for my sword drill training. Uh, I I knew it was after 2 Peter. I just, I felt so good about myself last night. (laughs) Well, the, here I was thinking, so, I was like, oh, yeah, I took fencing for like a year once. Yeah, I'm no. like, I'm familiar with how to hold the sword. <laughs> OK, yeah. so thank you for that nice segue, because I had a conversation this past, I talked like a week ago now um, with a student. We were talking about this armor business and, and the sword. We came to the place where we're talking about the sword of the spirit. And I made this, you know, question about sword drills and everybody kind of chuckled like you guys had. And, and one kid said, the problem is that we did sword drills and no one ever taught us how to fence. Oh. So the challenge that he's facing, the challenge that he's facing now as an eighth grader is, yeah, he knows how to find the verses when I scream them out by title and, you know, like by book and chapter and verse, but that's meaningless. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's meaningless. He doesn't actually know how to effectively use the word of God when he's challenged. Mm. Yeah. He doesn't know where to turn to find something. He just knows how to find something if you tell him to turn to it. Well, right. that's yeah. not equipping. No, it's no not. not at all. No, it's it's a great example. It's funny you say that, too, just because in, in light of the passages they're studying, their verse for this week, then, is John 10, 10, where 
uh, even with what we're talking about today, where, where Jesus says, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you would have life and have life overflowing. And, and what I've invited him to do is not just memorize or know where that verse is, but why don't you connect what you're hearing from John 10, 10 now to 1 John 1, 1 through 5 and start right. building this worldview. Who was this Jesus? What did it mean that the world, the word became flesh and dwelt among us? And some of this equipping, this is what it means to go out with a sword, is to have a worldview that has been equipped by the realities of the kingdom, not just uh, otherwise useless knowledge. I don't want to miss the the last portion of this text because Paul makes a pretty significant, I don't want to call it a pivot. He develops. The development of this text <laughs> moves from, um, all right, you are going to stand. You're going to stand firm. You're going to withstand. Um, when you've done everything else, then you're going to stand. And actually that one is God will stand you. Like when you've done everything to stand and you can't stand anymore, mm-hmm. stand because God will stand you, which I just love. And then he yeah. talks about these parts and pieces of the full armor of God. Um, and then he moves into this final series of admonitions, and it's about prayer. Um, mm-hmm. Paul says that we're to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplications. And so I thought I would pause there because um, then he goes on to to call us to be alert or on guard um, and to pray with all perseverance, um, again, to make supplication for all the saints, pray also for for him, pray for uh, pray that he would have the words um, to open his mouth boldly and proclaim the mystery of the gospel as he should. So there's just pray, 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 pray. Um, when 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 you hear Paul say to pray uh, at all times and to pray in the Spirit, what 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 does that mean to you? Yeah, boy, I. You know, there's, there's, there's those two views on prayer. One is that we pray simply to be able to discern what God is already up to, uh, up to and then partner with God in those places. And, and another view sort of is that prayer somehow impacts the realm of the spirit in ways that we maybe don't fully understand. And when I read Pauline language, like you just read there, Carmen, and so many of the other things that Paul would write about prayer, there seems to be some kind of uh, effectiveness within the realm of the spirit when God's people enter into prayer. I can't confess that I know how it all works. I would so hesitate to say that if you pray A, then B will happen. But but there is some kind of agency human beings seem to have in the realm of the spirit. And, and I think it's it maybe is among the most misunderstood topics that I know of within the Christian community. And and yet there is this earnestness everywhere Paul turns. And I mean, never no more earnest than this Ephesians 6 passage, pray, pray, pray all the time. Uh, and, and if I start with an idea of prayer, is it simply talking with God about my day uh, and sort of going through my day with the voice of God present? Then from there, I think there's all kinds of opportunities to engage in the realm of the spirit on behalf of the people around you. How that all works, I don't always confess that I know, but I suspect that that is a limitation on my part, not a limitation of the text. Yeah, I think that's well said. Not when you when you hear Paul say, pray at all times, does that sound reasonable or impossible? And then when you hear Paul say, pray in the spirit, what does that mean to you? Yeah, right. Pray in the spirit. I don't know. Uh, it's complicated. But uh, as as far as the all time goes, right, like I think there's there's a couple uh, directions you can look at it, right? Like there's the, the you pray before your meal where there's like a, a set beginning and a set end and it's like got sort of like a structure to it regardless. Oh. But 
I feel like there's an ongoing conversation that you can be having in a way that is always constant here in a back and forth versus just your set, you know, uh, ritual. And in that way, praying at every moment seems very justifiable for a God who's relational and who you have a personal connection with. Yeah, can we do I an episode of the exactly. on that sometime about prayer like this and about even what it means to pray in Jesus's name, right? Like all of these things are all now all out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which actually gets us back to the beginning of this passage, which yeah. is the whole notion of um, of standing in the strength of the Lord, standing in the Lord and in the strength of the Lord. Um, because if you're if you're not standing, if you don't have standing in Christ, then you don't have standing to pray. Right. And you're not in the spirit because you're not in Christ. You, this all access, this all access passive prayer, like right that we get, yeah. is is issued by Jesus. So um, you're not getting, you know, to pray at all times and pray in the spirit if you're not in in Christ. And yeah. so the whole passage really is um, uh, is Paul acknowledging again that um, what this is all really about is being in Christ Jesus, not just uh, having what Jesus did for you apply at a particular point in time when, you know, you're ready to stamp your uh, your heaven pass, but that this is about all times, all moments, all places, all spaces, that the all-access pass is not just that we have an all-access pass to God, but that God has an all-access pass in all times, in all places, in all spaces to us. And so I think that when, you know, when Paul is saying pray at all times in the spirit, and then he moves through this litany of concerns, um, I think he's just helping the Ephesians and us be mindful of the fact that God is, uh, God is interested in every part of our lives and he sees it all. He wants us to acknowledge that we know that he is present and that he is interested, that he is available, that his will is being worked out and that we are his in the midst of whatever the circumstances are. We'll catch you next time here on Intel.